You're listening to That'll Preach, a weekly show on the Forks Midtown podcast. I'm Brian, joined with my co-host, Paul, and we are going to take you on a theological journey, as we always do, <laughs> through the book, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. That's not all we do on the show. We provide a lot of laughs, yeah. a lot of family entertainment, wholesome comedy, and inspiration. Do you think any families actually listen in? Approximately zero. <laughs> I would not subject my children to this show. You have no children. My point exactly. Think about that. Mm. Regardless, don't think too hard about that. But, uh, I mean, we're, we're pretty fun guys. I mean, we're pretty enjoyable to listen to. So I feel like if you have to say that, it undermines the point. <laughs> we're very insecure about how fun we are. You guys are having fun, right? But the whole point is you get a little theological knowledge, you get a little fun, and then you get... Uh, you get, you get, you get. You also get this the the, the wittyisms, the, the the wittiness of of our banter. Did you say wittyisms? Let's move on. <laughs> so we usually start with a hot take, oh, unpopular yeah. opinion. And uh, Paul, as a philosopher, that's all you do is have unpopular. My opinions. life is just one unpopular. You, opinion. Your life, man. It's hilarious. Like when I look at your life, Paul, I just think it's just one large unpopular. I opinion. am a hot take. Paul Rescala himself <laughs> is an unpopular opinion. What, what's I'll your? Take I'll take it. I'll take it. I have controversial opinions. My first one is Paul Rescala. Ooh, <laughs> it's already crazy. All right, so hit us with your. Uh, I got you. Hot take. Shoveling snow. Is actually enjoyable. Agreed. All Agreed. right. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> well, there's something therapeutic about it. And it's really, you got to be a Northeasterner. Oh, like absolutely. You, you can't be a I'm Midwesterner. From yeah. Paul's from New York. Yeah. That's how he talks offline. He's that. like, we're done with this podcast. Shoveling that sounds like snow a Russian KB. We're Brooklyn. done with this podcast. <laughs> we're done with this podcast. I'm from Brooklyn. But we're going to get canceled. <laughs> we're going to get canceled. You just insulted everybody. But yeah, no, it is. It's therapeutic. And it's like, it's cold. I'm just thinking about things that I haven't been able to do in Tallahassee. <laughs> the only two things Paul needs is something has to be therapeutic and, and it has cold. To be cold. <laughs> and I'm good. So I'm ice set. cream must be, you must love ice cream. I do love ice cream. Yeah, there you go. What if you just like <laughs> shoveled ice cream? Yeah, make, make your own ice cream from snow. We used to call them uh, lemon slushies when like- <laughs> You'd pee in it? No, no, no. Oh, like oh, like, oh. like the dogs would pee in the snow. You'd I be like, say, oh, I wasn't <laughs> Would you eat that? <laughs> Gosh. No, you wouldn't need it, but you know, you just—it looks like a lemon slushy. So. But it is; it is therapeutic. How much land did you have to shovel? We had we had a shared driveway with the neighbor, and we would have to do the sidewalk in New York City. You have to shovel your sidewalk. Really? If somebody, yeah. If somebody slips and falls, you can get a ticket. You can get a ticket even if no one falls. Like it's just your responsibility. To, Interesting. Yeah. So it was. Yeah, we'd yeah, get we up and to, do it. We. I remember having to shovel the snow. We had a driveway, a long driveway, because we kind of lived on a hill. Uh-huh. And so... Was it like a family activity? Like everybody would get out? No, and it was just me out there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that sounds less fun. It was kind of... It was You're a little alone zen. with it's your a thoughts? Zen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, then we got a snowblower, and that was a lot of fun. Wait, you got to like ride one? No, it was the thing you pushed. Oh, and it would just shoot just the snow out? Yeah, oh, that's pretty cool. It would just rocket it out the side. Wow. with this chute. You could... Direct it different ways. It's but wouldn't just, you just have, wouldn't it like shoot it to somewhere else and you right. have to just but you could do it again? Adjust the arc so oh. that it could get some range. That's pretty cool. Yeah. But you would have to plan it out a little bit. Yeah. It doesn't sound as fun as shoveling. So, you're never so far from the edge that you can't. That sounds deep. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> you're never too far from the edge. There you go. That you can't blow some snow. It's way better than mowing the lawn. Like there are some yeah. some household 
maintenance activities that are just not appealing at all. That's true. That's Mowing true. the lawn, weed whacking. I guess stuff that I associate with heat. Those just sound terrible. Yeah, heat sucks. But the cold, and then you come in, you get to have some hot oh, chocolate, no, no, I, snowball I, fights. You know what, though? The older I get, the more I don't like. I don't like bitter cold either. Like, I... I don't You're know. So old. I I kind of now I feel like I've tipped more toward. I'd rather have a hot summer. Florida has really, poisoned you. I know. I know. I just the bitter cold is just. You don't miss like just jumping into a pile of snow. Part of me wants yeah. that, like my inner child. It's true, but snow can make things inconvenient too in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, you get snow days. Your car doesn't work. True. Or you, you have to like get, dig your car yeah, out. Yeah. Yeah, there's something nostalgic about snow. Yeah, look at us reminiscing about the good northeast days. Right, right. And now we have snow. Who's in like 95 degrees today? Gross. Take me now. But yeah, shoveling snow. Therapeutic. And zen. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, enough chit chat. Let's get to the meat. To the meat. <laughs> that was very unexpected, <laughs> unexpected enthusiasm coming from Paul. But uh, yeah, we're, we're going to continue on in mere Christianity. We've been doing this. We've had like what ten or eleven episodes. Go look in the archives. We've had a lot. The archives. Archives. <laughs> I thought you were just trying to be funny. No, 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 I was just foolish. The archives. But uh, yeah, this is. I mean, this has been a great series. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you go back, watch some of the older episodes, you can follow along. But really. You know, go. We're covering a ton of different topics, and this is we're just kind of free flowing. We're just vibing, you know. But we're we're getting to the end of this book. I, I mean, know. we only have four chapters left. We're gonna we're gonna tackle two of them today, eight and nine, and then yep. and then we're done with the book. I know. It's so been a, it's been a journey. It's been crazy. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's do it. I hope uh, I hope we can really do justice to the book because I mean it you, the, probably won't, but probably won't. <laughs> but uh, if you haven't read Mere Christianity before, you really need to. C.S. Lewis. Wrote this back, what, the 60s? I mean, he, he gave these as radio addresses originally in, in the, the 40s. 40s. Yep. During World War II, which mm-hmm. think about that. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then uh, actually formally published them in the 60s. Something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Who's counting? But uh, these are basically kind of apologetic, which is the defense of the faith. But it, I don't even know if he's really defending the faith so much as he's... He's just giving, he's just telling people what Christianity yeah, is. Yeah, and, and he's doing it in a way that's really compelling yeah and uh you know it 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 makes you really think deeply about the christian faith but not just about christianity but what it means to be a human where joy comes from what morality is what virtue is what yeah you know what what does it mean to be somebody who loves well or who's gracious or all these concepts and i think he ties those in really well and shows how christianity makes sense of all of that you can almost see, though, how he's speaking to like a post-Christian England in the 1940s where right. there's enough common ground between the Christian and the non-Christian that he can make use of a lot of these concepts. And part of me wonders if C.S. Lewis were writing today how he would write a kind of mere Christianity because there's a little bit like there's less assumptions in common between yeah, the Christian and the secular common mindset. Common ground. Right. Yeah. So right. that yeah. would have been interesting. It would have been. We're waiting for our That's next C.S. Our Lewis. Job. Yeah, yeah. You know, it'd be called beer Christianity. Actually, that's kind of relatable. Yeah, I feel like people nobody take that. Nobody, I'm coming after you. I'm going to sue you if you take that. Anyway, Christianity. But uh, chapters eight and nine of book four. So Mm -hmm. beer Christianity split into four books. So the fourth final book, chapters eight and nine of it, or sections eight and nine, however you want to call it. He talks about. uh, Well, let's just start with each chapter. Chapter eight. 
is titled, and it's kind of a provocative title, mm-hmm. is Christianity Hard or Easy? Ooh. And, uh, and he, he, he kind of sketches out the idea of what it means to put on Christ. So mm-hmm. the, the, the New Testament talks about putting on Christ, putting off the old man. And he, he kind of builds off the theme he talks about in previous chapters about how we're, we first dress up as a son of God so that might, we might become a real son. So right. God adopts <laughs> us into his family, mm-hmm. and then he turns us into people that look like family members yeah. in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but he says that this is the whole of Christianity, that, that, that when we talk about conversion, it's a transformation of the whole self, not mm-hmm. just a few habits that you have. Right. And what he's going to do is he's going to sketch out how if you only look at it as sort of I'm a Christian now and I'm slightly morally better, I'm doing other different things. Yeah. But you don't give over your desires, your dreams, your very foundation of your identity and your and, and giving up your making your own personal happiness the highest goal in your life. Until you fully give over yourself, you're always going to sort of resent Christianity. You're, you're going to be a person that's split into two. Mm-hmm. The, the call of discipleship from Christ is going to pull you one way, and your personal ambition and desires and what he calls the natural self is yeah. going to pull you another way. And so he's saying being converted is not having that fork. It's being pulled all in one direction. All yeah. of it goes. You, you give your whole life and say, Lord, you do whatever you want with it. Right. Whatever your dreams are for me, whatever your desires are for me, whatever you want for my life, I'm going to submit that to you. And he's like, that's what we talk about when we talk about conversion. Yeah. And uh, well, and also there's, he's pointing out that there's a, an error in, in just confusing Christianity with moralism. And uh, he's going to address that. And then sometimes we, we tend to pit two Christian ideas against each other. One is that Christianity is hard. And one is that Christianity is easy. And we almost contradict ourselves because he, he, even Lewis quotes, passages from scripture that, you know, Jesus elegant those different questions by distinguishing Christianity from moralism, but also showing why Christianity is better in that it's easier in one sense, harder in another sense, but ultimately it is the better picture, right? And so he's going to tie everything in in that way. Okay. So what, what does he mean by moralism? So he says that there's some of us have a temptation to view the world like I have my natural instincts and my desires and my selfishness and morality is this set of claims and commitments and this lifestyle that's diametrically opposed to my selfish desires. And so we say, okay, well, if I if I don't give in to my selfish desires and I just do what ethics or morality requires of me, then eventually I'll be a good person and then there's going to be enough room on the end that I can give in a little bit to my selfish desires, right? Like morality is just about ticking off some items on a checklist. And once I've done that, then I'm good and then I can go back to fulfilling my natural desires. Right. So your actual motivation is still fundamentally selfish. Yeah, yeah. But you're trying to tick off the moral Let me Let me get this moral stuff out of the way so I can go back to what's really important, namely myself. Well... Lewis has this interesting illustration where he says that, you know, he compares two students. One mm-hmm. student learns math. Right. Right. The other student just memorizes the answer. Mm-hmm. The guy who memorizes the answer is doing something that's pleasurable at the moment. He's like, okay, cool. Now I get the answer. I can do less work. Mm. I can pass this test. The problem is 
he's not actually learning the subject. Right. And when he actually takes the final test, he's in trouble. He's, he's cramping. He's making yeah. more work for himself. Right. And I think the illustration is if you just tick the boxes and go, I did a right action here, mm -hmm. but you don't reflect and you don't actually try to cultivate, you know, for example, I gave money. Hypothetically, I don't actually give money. I'm a That's very right. greedy person. <laughs> but you can say, oh, I gave money. I did a good thing. Mm -hmm. And that is a good thing. But if you only stop there, you're not getting at the heart of the transformation that happens at conversion. Right. Because it's not just that you, you know, you could say, I did this good thing and now I can feel good about spending all this money on something else. Right. You could still be a fundamentally greedy person. Yeah. And you could use that as a thing that sort of offsets or it evens the score a little yeah. bit. Yeah. But your motivation, again, is like we're saying, mm -hmm. selfishness. What God wants is for you to actually become a selfless person. Yeah. It's not just you're giving, you're giving money because that's fundamentally part of who you are now. Mm -hmm. And we're always gonna struggle with that, but that's the goal that God is trying to mold into us. Yeah. And, um, you know, he talks about, uh, when we talk about being natural, right? Uh, we're not saying that it's effortless, right? Yeah. Uh, if you think about, you know, uh, grass naturally grows out of soil. Mm -hmm. Right, but there's still effort required in tending a lawn. Sure, You've got to yeah. pull weeds. In the same way, the Christian life, there are fruit. There's fruit that's going to naturally come out of us. Yeah, but weeds of sin can hinder that development. Mm -hmm. And so, when we think about this, we don't want to think as though you become a Christian and suddenly you effortlessly just wake up yeah. and you're fine. Mm -hmm. But it's more like you wake up and you pray, not because it's not hard to pray, but because you have grown in the discipline of prayer. Right. You know that just because something is hard doesn't mean you don't do it. Yeah. You 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 learn a sense of resolve, a sense of strength to walk forward. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think about Jesus after the Garden of Gethsemane. He is face was set toward Jerusalem. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't floating on clouds thinking, this is great. <laughs> it was a decision he made and a resolve that he had that was disciplined through prayer, through the life that he lived, right. that allowed him to face what was coming with courage. Yeah, And I think that's the kind of stuff God wants to actually make us into a certain type of person. That's a theme that Lewis talks about all throughout the book. Yeah, and you gotta think, Lewis's point is that People are going like you're. You're going to work hard at some point. So, with that example of the the two schoolboys you brought up, there you have one one boy who's who's lazy and just memorizes the answers that he can regurgitate. It. One learns how to derive the correct answer from the equation and understands the mechanics. Both of them are going to put in a lot of effort at some point. The one who's learning the mechanics is going to put in a lot of initial effort at the start. But then the next time he sees an algebra problem, it's gonna it's gonna be a lot easier. He's gonna he's gonna get an answer. It's gonna be like second nature. The one who just memorizes the answer is going to do well in the spur of the moment. But then the next time he sees a algebra problem, he's not gonna be able to to figure it out, right? right. So it's gonna require it's more not work. Internalized, there. exactly. Right. I remember my my dad telling me growing up, everyone's gonna work hard either at the start of their life or at the end. And so it's basically like an encouragement to work hard, study hard, you know. Try to do that so that you set yourself up well for the future. And if you, you know, don't do a good job when you're starting off with your studies, you're going to work harder than later in your life. But the point is, you're going to work hard regardless, right? right? But you want it. You want the effort to be applied in the right place. And I think that's what Lewis is saying. You want to apply the effort towards the cultivation of the good habits, right? So that the good behavior comes naturally, and it's not just a one-off every single time. You don't just want to 
ace a test. Yeah. You want to learn the material. Yes. Right. right. One mm-hmm. of them is going to pay. Di- one of them might be more immediately gratifying. Right. You, know, you get an A. Mm-hmm. But that A is not going to mean anything if you don't actually learn math. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Like that's the whole point of an education. Right. At least it used to be back in my day. <laughs> but uh, that is a great like. You know, what kind of person does God want you to be? Well, yeah. He wants you to be transformed. He wants you to transform your heart. Your mm-hmm. heart isn't your feely, squishy emotions. It's it's the, it's the center of your will. <laughs> feely, squishy emotions. It's the center of your allegiance. Right. Yeah. It's the center of your allegiance. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I think Lewis really hones in on that idea. And then he really hones in on, okay, God wants to turn us into a specific type of person. Mm-hmm. Where does he do that? Yeah. Well, he says the church. Yeah. Right. He says in the same way, the church now in the same way. Okay. So maybe we set it up. He, mm-hmm. he talks about how the state exists to promote and protect the ordinary happiness of human beings in this life. Right. That's a great example. Yeah. Right. Like mm-hmm. all the, you know, like we were talking about this, yeah. all of the, the government structures, government structures yeah. doesn't, doesn't matter if it's not fundamentally doing what it's supposed to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. It's sort of like a, a dad who provides a great house and great, you know, toys and food and all that stuff, but he's not there. Right. It's like, well, what's the house th- for yeah, if you're yeah. not going to live there with your family? And so the state exists to cultivate human flourishing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and he says, in the same way, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men to Christ, to make them little Christs. If they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, mission, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. Hmm. And so what he's saying is like, if it's, if it's, if it's just about cathedrals, clergy, mission, sermons, even even just Bible study all the time, it, yeah. then it, but you're not actually forming people. Right. Then you're kind of, you have all the external trappings of a church, but mm-hmm. you're not doing what the church is designed to do. And, and I think today it's like, that's so important. Yeah. We, there are so many issues. There's social issues. There's political issues. Uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, relational issues, all these kind of issues, right? But fundamentally, the church has a specific call yeah. to make disciples of Christ. Mm-hmm. And specifically, what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? To cultivate in you the kinds of virtues that Christ had, Yeah, right? Uh, not just mere moralism, mm-hmm. just trying to make you, you know, do these external things, but to, to help you grow in godliness. Yeah. And out of that will flow politics mm-hmm. and culture and mercy ministries and event, and all these things, yeah. right? But really uh, like if how you Lewis, lose that, you you lose everything. Yeah, I mean, the way Lewis puts it there of being little Christs is a very helpful way of of understanding the picture. Because yeah, it's not about moralism, and it's not about just ticking some moral checklist, becoming just conforming to some ethical standard. But it really is about becoming who God initially designed us to be, and initially not being able to to be that, given the, our fallen nature. But because of Christ, now we have an opportunity to live into what we were initially designed to be. And it's really helpful to, to sharpen our idea of what the church is for if we, if we listen to Lewis on this point. That the whole entirety of the church with all of its arms and wings and, and the whole body of Christ is to make more Christs, is to make these, these, the, the tin soldiers that Lewis talks about, animate and, and real and, and full of life. And it, it the, the church is a life-giving institution, essentially. It, it, it takes the dead things and makes them alive. And it takes 
the the broken things and makes them less defective and flourishing. And it takes humans and makes them what they're supposed to be, which is what we see in Jesus. And when you look at it like that, it really, it, it puts everything into perspective. It puts the Bible studies and the worship and the outreach it, it takes those and it puts them into the service of what is the primary aim of the church um, so that those aren't distinct aims on their own, but they're all under this wing and goal of making people like Christ. Not just those in the church, but extending the invitation, those outside the church, hey, we have a chance to become more human, to become more like Christ. And that's that's an amazing thing. Well, this is why it's so important that, you know, Romans 5 talks about Jesus being the second Adam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Adam was the, you know, the, the, the forefather of the human race. And Jesus comes in that model. Why? Because Adam was the prototype of humanity and then the prototype of sinful humanity after the fall. Mm-hmm. Christ is the prototype of redeemed humanity. So when we talk about, and, and again, this is Lewis. This is just what Lewis is looking at. Where, like you're saying, Jesus Christ is showing us what it means to be a human being. Yeah. Right? This is human humanity in its glorified state right. when we see the resurrected Christ. And so that's why, you know, when, 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 and this is in chapter nine, and maybe we can transition yeah, there, yeah, yeah. when, when mm-hmm. Lewis talks mm-hmm. about counting the cost, and he talks about how God says, you know, be ye perfect in the old English, right? <laughs> and he says, some people think that means, unless you're perfect, I will not help you. But Lewis says he actually means, the only help I will give is to help you become perfect. Yeah. Right. You want you may want something less, but I will give you nothing less. That's key. You may want something less than perfect, but I will give you nothing less. Now, we think about perfect. We don't mean like here's a test of morality, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's the idea of wholeness. Yeah. It's the idea of being uh, who God created you to be. Yeah. And that's fundamentally at odds. The vision that God has for who he wants you to be is fundamentally at odds with the vision of how you want you to be. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. He wants you to be a selfless creature who serves and loves other people and loves God. You want to be a a person who loves yourself and who makes gods out of false things. Mm -hmm. And so when when we think about the process, then we understand, okay, this is why God disciplines me in my life. This is why God trains me. This is why God sends trials in my life. This is why God reveals things in my life because his plan is better than mine. Right. And his vision of what he wants me to be is going to rub me the wrong way because I still have this sinful nature that wants to look a different way. Yeah. I mean, it's, initially it was striking that Lewis titles this chapter, Counting the Cost, where Jesus says, count the cost before becoming my disciple. And he says, part of what it means to count the cost is God is going to make you perfect. And so what that means is before you accept that, you have to count the cost. So what he's saying there is that that claim of I'm going to make you perfect should kind of put us a little bit unease. Right. And when you think about what that means, Lucas or, uh, Lewis fleshes this out and says when he was a child and he had a toothache, he could go to his mom and ask for like a like a soother or some, some painkiller. But then he knew that the next day he'd have to go to the dentist. So what he wanted was just the instant relief without going to the dentist the next day. He would go around and, and, you know, move teeth apart and it would be kind of painful, but it would be a total restructuring of his mouth to get at that problem. And so sometimes we treat God in that way or we treat Christianity in that way. We've got one problem. Maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's a financial issue. And we want God to come and fix that. Maybe we're even humble enough to say, I do have sin in my life, right? And I need to get rid of this sinful tendency, this addiction, this whatever. 
but God is, is, is not just the plumber who's going to come in and fix the plumbing. He's going to come in and total, totally restructure the way that your life is. And so there has to be a healthy dose of count the cost, right? Christianity is an invitation to literal self-destruction in the sense that you're opening yourself up the good to be kind. the good kind of self-destruction. God comes in and makes you into a totally new kind of thing, way beyond what you could have imagined. And, and that's where the counting the cost is. The cost is yourself. Yeah. Do, do you do you want to be this kind of creature that God wants to make you? And you're right. And then Lewis makes the point where, like you were saying, sometimes people test out Christianity because, you know, I've got I, I've got an alcohol problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I need to go to church more, or mm-hmm. my marriage is falling apart. And that's great. Yeah. I mean, not, I mean, it's not great that you're an alcoholic, <laughs> but I'm saying it's great that whatever whatever gets you in those doors, and they find that oh wow, you know. The church is helping me with my marriage and my, you know, my addictions are getting less, having less power over me. Mm. But if they stop there, they're kind of using God as their own life coach. Yeah. God goes, I'll fix that. But also that's my in almost. I'm going to start knocking down and revealing things you didn't even know were lurking in you. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like gateway sins. Like yeah. we all know the big bad ones, but we don't recognize how materialistic we are. We mm. don't recognize how envious we are. Yeah. And once we become a Christian, it's a lifelong process of God opening up those things and showing us that he wants to cure things we didn't even know were sicknesses or diseases, yeah. mm-hmm. right? And uh, But God is very gracious. And I love what he says here where he talks about how uh, he, he quotes George MacDonald, which is a, an author that C.S. Lewis liked. Mm-hmm. It's like C.S. Lewis is C.S. Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> uh, MacDonald says, God is easy to please but hard to satisfy, right? He, he talks about how... Um, Every father is pleased at the baby's first attempt to walk, right? But no father would be satisfied with anything less than a firm, free, manly walk in a grown-up son. Yeah. So you see your little boy, and he's walking around with his oversized head, and he kind of stumbles a few feet, and you clap, and you're like, good job, and you love him, right? But you don't want him doing that for 30 years. Right. You you clap, and you're joyful for every step along the process, but you have a goal in the end. You're you're easily pleased by our—God's easily pleased by our small steps of obedience. Yeah. But he's never satisfied with us staying there. Yeah. So he's easily pleased that you went to the church, and you said, I've got a drinking problem. My marriage is in shambles. He's Mm -hmm. pleased by the little changes you have in those things. Yeah. But he doesn't want you to stop there. There's other areas in your life that he wants to change. And, uh, but each time you fall, he will pick you up again. Mm-hmm. And that, that's something that Lewis talks about. And that I think helps us understand that, you know, God's plan is different from our plan. Yeah. Right. But God's plan is greater than our plan. Yeah. Right. And when we submit to him, when we go, Lord, I want you to shape me into what you want me to be. Mm-hmm. We trust that that kind of person is better in the long run, yeah. more joyful and better. Yeah than the kind of person that we would want to be left to our own sinful desires. It's like the, I don't know who said this, but it's the comment, God wants you to come as you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay as right, you are. Right. And and Lewis, Lewis puts it this way, God is the helper who will in the long run be satisfied with nothing less than absolute perfection, but will also be delighted with the first feeble stumbling effort you make tomorrow to do the simplest duty. So the... And, and this this goes back to what we were talking about in the last episode with faith. God rewards faith with faith. The the man who goes to Jesus with his demon-possessed son and says, Lord, help my unbelief. Right. There, that, that first feeble step in the right direction, 
God rewards that God rewards that and 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 that pleases him. But again, that's not the end point. God wants to to bring you up from there and develop you into the kind of person who is going to actually exercise faith and and character like Christ. So the point is God God is pleased by the initial first step even if it's a small one. Right. But it's God's not going to be satisfied to leave you there, right? Because the goal is perfection, to make you into a son and a daughter of God. And Lewis ties us into trials in our lives and suffering mm. in our life. Yeah. Right? He says, when troubles come along, illness, money troubles, new kinds of temptation, we get disappointed. Right? And I'm, I'm paraphrasing to make mm -hmm. it, you know, these things uh, might be necessary to rouse us and make us repent in our old bad days. Like, you go, oh, I get why, you yeah, know, yeah. when I was a crazy partier, mm -hmm. God disciplined me, you right. know, and he showed me there in my ways. But now I've stopped partying yeah. and I'm a good Christian now. Yeah. Why are trials still happening? And he's going, well, that's the whole point. God is forcing you on up or uh, forcing you to a higher level. Yeah putting you into situations where you have to be much more brave, patient, loving than you ever dreamed of being before, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, God's gonna keep pushing you forward. He doesn't want you to just stop partying. He wants you to grow in other areas too. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we never uh, arrive in the Christian life, mm -hmm. right? It's sort of like you see the drugs to Jesus thing, like I was strung out on meth under yeah. a bridge, you know, drinking vodka, whatever. Yep. <laughs> And and then uh, and then I stopped and Jesus yeah. saved me. It's like, well, that's not the end of the story, right? Right. Because well, it's like, well, now God's going to teach you, you know, how to have patience with mm -hmm. people who disagree with you. Right. He's going to teach you how to, um, you know, be long suffering, how mm -hmm. to endure, how to be faithful in the small things, yeah. right? Things that we may not think like, okay, we get why we should kick a drug addiction, but like, yeah, you know how I handle social media, what, or like yeah, yeah, how yeah. I, my lack of forgiveness for people who've hurt me, what, yeah. you know? And yet that's, that's God's project, right? Lewis, Lewis has this idea that God's plan for us individuals is something that we can't fathom. And it's something that almost, I think Lewis wants to say that if God were to tell us in the midst of our molding and suffering, what the end product he's going for is going to look like, we'd be terrified and we just want to run the other way. Right. So... The idea there, and he borrows this example from George MacDonald again, the idea that uh, God is uh, goes into a house and starts doing some repairs. And at first you're like, yeah, he's fixing the leaky roof. He's fixing That's the leaky faucet. Yeah. yeah. But then he starts tearing down bedrooms and adding a second wing and removing the second floor. And you're like, this is painful. And there's water's coming in everywhere. And there's dust and sheetrock. And there's no place to live. And And in that process, it might look like you have no idea what's going on and there's no way to tell what the end result is going to look like. And there, I think it's part of, part of the Christian life is faith that God, the one who started your journey is going to complete it, right? God is the author and the finisher. And I think sometimes it means just having faith at that, that process, even though it's painful with the suffering, with the trials, you go, well, but God, I'm a good Christian. Why? I understand that you'd want to rouse me from my sin when I was a right, sinner. Right. Why are you letting this horrible stuff happen to me now? And the answer is you're not the finished product yet. But you're you're heading in that direction, and so God's using suffering, God's using difficulties to make you more into the character of Christ, and so we should approach it with a kind of humility. That, I mean, we should take it as a good sign that we're not arrived yet, 
right? We should be open to the fact that God is still working in us and the end product is going to look much better than what we are today. And again, it, it, it keeps going back to that idea of, you know, people often stumble into Christianity to deal with a problem in their life. Mm -hmm. And that may be the opening, but God, like you said, and, and I, I'm just going to read the quote. He says, you know, he talks about that parable you're talking about, you know, God, God comes in to rebuild a house, right? Mm -hmm. And at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. He says that so much better than the way I described right. it. <laughs> but, but it's the idea. Yeah, yeah. God, uh, you know, I need you to help me fix this one thing in my life, this yeah. one sin pattern in my life. He, and then he starts to heal that. And sometimes people get stuck in that. Their story is always, I mm. did this one sin, I stopped. Yeah. And that's their story, right. always, always, always. And it's like, well, no, that should just be the opening to go, I'm more sinful than I ever thought. Mm -hmm. And the grace of God is more spacious and powerful yeah. and forgiving than I ever imagined, mm. right? That's the whole idea. And you realize over time, man, that sin problem I had when I was first a Christian wasn't even the worst about me. Yeah, That was just... Tip of the uh, iceberg. The tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And as the iceberg gets revealed, you realize grace covers that even more. And that God knows what you need to change more than you do. Hmm. And so it that's why when trials come, you're like, why would I need to learn this? Yeah. Well, it's because you don't set the curriculum. The teacher knows the curriculum. He right. knows where he wants to get you. Mm -hmm. And the fight of faith is believing that he has what's your best in mind when you can't understand and all you see is the dust from the debris and the destruction he seems to be putting in your life, yeah. when really all he's doing is making a house. And I love this, not just a house, but a, a house palace. for him to dwell yeah. in, mm -hmm. a palace for him to dwell in with you. It's amazing. It's great stuff, great stuff. Well, we're gonna wrap up this <laughs> series uh, next week yep. and uh, it's been quite a ride so yeah, stick with us pick up the book read along with us and we're going to be back next week with some more Mere Christianity